to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Welcome back. I'm Daria Brown at Affect Autism, and this week we have a returning guest, Dr. Joshua Fader, a child and family psychiatrist in Solana Beach, California where he uses the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, DIR model. He is also an expert DIR training leader and the editor-in-chief at the Carla Child Psychiatry Report. He is also an advocate with the DIR Coalition of California and a faculty member with both the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning and Perfectum and an adjunct faculty with Fielding Graduate University in the Child and Infant Development PhD program where he heads up the Infant and Early Childhood Development Research Incubator, which we talked about in a past podcast with the um, SimPlay app, which we still have to do a follow-up to that as well. <laughs> and his latest role is Medical Director of Positive Development. So welcome back, Dr. Fader, and what is this latest role? Thanks so much, Daria. It's great to be back. Well, so I do a lot of things, and now what I'm doing and really focusing a lot of my attention on is this new company, Positive Development. For many years, people have struggled with getting insurance to pay for DIR treatment. And we've worked uh, in advocacy at the legislative level um, in various states. And I'm actually, I just got off the phone a little while ago uh, with uh, Senator Menendez's office in New Jersey talking about some national legislation, which we hope to pursue as well. But fighting for legislatures to give us the right to um, all evidence-based care um, is quite a struggle. And at Positive Development, we realized that if we could more directly work with the insurance companies on hopefully on a national level to understand that the current research is really very much in support of developmental approaches, which we can talk a little bit more about later perhaps, um, but it's really flipped uh, from about 10 years ago. So that well, we're well this, is, this is a good time to jump in and say we did a whole podcast about that, which I'll put a link to in our blog post, the move toward oh, developmental approaches that we talked about last time. Did you and I talk about that last time? Did we, we did. Or, uh, is that, I showed you like the top of the heap stuff. I don't even remember all the talks yep, I give. Yep. I apologize. Well, so anyway, um, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to leverage that research with the insurance companies so that they would fund uh, autism care. And the, the treatment model that we're um, using is one where we have a case coordinator, mental health, speech, OT, and paraprofessionals to help extend family so that while it's a parent mediated model, we want um, you know, families to have better relationships and really have that be the, the way in which we help kids and families do better. Um, we also have paraprofessional people coming in and uh, you know, playing and helping with support development. So that's 
that's a big thing. That's kind of like if you're familiar with the ABA model of people kind of coming into the house and treating the child and having the paraprofessionals do it. It's like the it's like the opposite universe, right? Where you have the same kinds of um, levels of personnel coming in, but what they're doing instead uh, is they're they're providing developmental care. And so one of the models that we looked at was Real Connections out here in California. I've been a big fan of them for years, and we're really piggybacking that model or growing it um, throughout the country. So we have um, uh, outlets now, uh, of course, in California, um, but also Florida and New Jersey, and we're looking at uh, other states too. So we we hope to grow big and beautiful and invite and welcome many of our uh, DIR uh, professional colleagues to, to join us in this effort, both within our company, but also if we're able to get insurance to pay for that, it's the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats. So other people will be able to get insurance reimbursement as well. Um, so it's, it's really very exciting. I have to say it's personally deeply fulfilling because as, as you know, my son, is on the spectrum, and when you know when he was a kid, you know we had to work pretty hard to pay for his treatment because insurance at the time for us it was uh, the military just just wouldn't pay, um, and uh, and even now um, it's still a problem where people won't pay. So very very passionate about that, um, and, um, uh, and and you'll hear more about it. Uh, I'm sure people will be hearing more about it. Well, um, yeah, to listeners. We have a whole army of DIR people out there advocating, and Dr. Fader definitely uh, is a trailblazer in this regard. So that's awesome to hear. <laughs> so what we are meeting about today stemmed from a conversation that Dr. Fader and I had after the November DIR floor time conference. And I did a presentation about my biggest revelations as a floor time parent over the last eight years. And one of those revelations was to accept reality. And that really spoke to Dr. Fader because there's so many layers to that. And where I was coming from was, um, and, and there have been some dis other discussions with other training leaders since then too, Dr. Fader, about this topic. But where I was coming from was um, being in this cloud of, Oh my goodness, my son, who's only two and a half, just had severe brain inflammation and he's now recovering. And I don't, I don't, didn't know if he was going to die tomorrow or be like exactly how he was yesterday in a week from now. And just this confusion and then going through the rehab hospital and then getting the autism diagnosis and really just that focus that so many parents that have a new diagnosis have, which is must fix now, must get back to normal, must get back on track. So when they get to be five years old, they'll be able to start school, be able to this, be able to do that. And really getting to the place where it took me personally at least four years to just accept the reality of, okay, my child is neurodiverse. He's on a different path. He's not, his trajectory is not going to look the same as other neurotypical children, not going to look the same as my nephew's trajectories. And I'm totally cool with that because he's an awesome kid and I absolutely adore him. And when I said that, accept reality as a revelation, um, someone pointed out to me, which is absolutely true. This is not like me saying advice. You get your diagnosis and parent, accept the reality right now. 
because it is a process, just like floor time we talk about is a process. Um, this is a process, accepting reality is a process. And I've had blogs with Dr. Robert Nassif about ambiguous loss and these other things around grief and that feeling of things are not gonna be the way I planned or thought of. And that is a grief for me, the parent, not for my child, but for me. And um, this really spoke to you. So <laughs> why don't we start from there and, and explain um, what came into your mind when you heard me speak about that? Um, well, I'm so glad to talk with you about this because except reality triggered me <laughs> <laughs> and it did because it's something that I teach about in, uh, the work that I do both with peace building with young children and places impacted by armed conflict, as well as in all the other work that I do with DIR at the core of DIR for me is actually reflective practice. I always tell people, if there's nothing else that you learn from everything we do, it's taking time to think and work together to problem solve, come back and you know try some ideas, come back and try them again and, and figure out over time what works for you and to help other people do that so that you're not telling them what to do, but you're helping them to experiment, see what works and develop their own confidence in their own competence to try to work with their child, whether they're a parent, a teacher, some other caregiver. And um, so within that context, um, I talk about, you know, the do's and don'ts of reflective practice. And my first don't is a cartoon. So I'm going to show it to you because it's, I want to screen share this. It's a cartoon slide. It's actually the, the ninth, nine, 10, 11, 12, yeah, the ninth of a, um, of a series. And do you see this? Yeah. Uh, and you can see this is in the middle of another talk, um, but um, this is actually the, the template for a lot of my training for peace building with young children. So uh, very quickly, we worry about in the top left, how kids who are under distress, including our own kids on the spectrum, but this is about kids in conflict, might grow up to be angry or sad. Um, we talk about the things that get them distressed when they're little, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and all those individual differences. And then the rest of that top line is about how enculturation starts even in utero and how we help kids with tantrums. The second line is actually a mini DIR model where first we're thinking about calming kids down, then playing with them, and then they grow up to be problem solvers when we're old and have a cane. And then my weight join build um, uh, is like, a, like the traffic light way of thinking about DIR on the fly, observing, joining Jenny and then building on things. But then the bottom line is all about reflective practice. And you can see the, of those slides on the bottom left is basically the uh, person who's trying to help the mom. I call the mom Jill and that's Joan helping Jill. And this is a what not to do. So here's why it triggered me. My first slide on that is a what not to do. It's Joan saying to Jill, face it, like accept reality. And um, when she says that inside Joan or Jill just kind of falls apart. I mean, I feel sick. She gets totally dysregulated. And one of the reasons why I start with that, partly my colleagues at um, UCSD, where I do a lot of my research, I'm not a professor there anymore, but I still do a whole lot of research in early intervention. Project Impact, if you've heard of it, uh, for toddlers, grew up there and is now part of the bigger Project Impact, which is another discussion. But um, 
we talked about what not to do and it got me thinking about what not to do. And the reason that's a what not to do goes straight to what you were saying at the beginning, Daria, which is when you're a parent, just kind of figuring out that you're in a different place um, to tell somebody in a harsh way, you know, you need to face what's going on uh, is usually not going to help them. It's going to extend, you talked about a four year process, really a lifelong process of knowing and at some level and then understanding in new ways how your child may have you know, challenges that are different from the neurotypical kids around them. But when you kind of rub it in like that, it's really dysregulating. And the reason why I'm so big about telling people not to do that is because people do that all the time. I have colleagues in my community and I hear about them you know, in other places who think that the best thing they can do um, to help a family is to show a mirror in their face, harsh mirror in their face, right? And it, it is not helpful. There are so many depressed families, parents, kids, and this does not help them. And so that's why it, that's why it kind of triggered me. However, to your point, we really do need to get to a place where we understand we're dealing with a different situation than we expected. Now, there's a way to think about different situations than we expected, which I find incredibly helpful. Let me start with this. Many of you have um, seen, and if you haven't seen it recently, it's worth Googling that poem, Welcome to Holland. I'm not gonna recite it here, but it's basically about planning for a trip to Italy, getting off the plane, and finding that you're in Holland and being pretty upset about it. And then eventually, it's a really beautiful poem, but eventually you figure out Holland's got tulips. Holland's got some pretty cool things, different foods. And it's kind of a great place to be, but it never was Italy and it's not going to be Italy. So getting to that space is really challenging um, for all of us, I think. And um, when I think about how that happens, and when I think about my patients who I'm trying to help uh, work with their own expectations, whether they're parents or kids, I remember it's actually a Talmudic saying that a good deed that happens at the right time is an incredible thing. And let me unpack that. What it means is that, to me, is that when things happen the way you expect, it's kind of the exception to the rule. When you think about it, you got up today, I got up today, and um, I took the dog out for a walk and came to work, all these things. But things didn't actually unfold the way I expected. My, my uh, most uh, important meaning up to this one, this is the most important meaning right now, um, went an entirely different direction than I expected. And things, when they don't go as we expect, we can often be upset, except if you understand that nothing actually goes exactly the way you expect, then instead of becoming a situation where you're upset about that, it becomes sort of a game in a way. It's like, oh, how is this different? And what do I want to do about it? So in the middle of my last meeting, when I'm talking to a bunch of muckety mucks, and they're saying, mm, can't do it that way. And I have my whole thing prepared, <laughs> everything. I was very, very prepared. They're like, no, not going to happen. I'm like, oh, that's right. This isn't happening the way I expected. What are we going to do? 
And then you're able to sort of let that aside and be able to work and think productively. So that's a long way of explaining how this kind of face reality is on the one hand critical, on the other hand, not immediate. And if we're trying to be great developmental people, whether we're therapists or parents or whatever, we have to remember that our job is to, well, lead with empathy. Now I'm kind of blathering on, I've got more to say, but I'm not sure if you have some comments before I blather on, Daria. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's absolutely true that uh, it is a process and, and I should have made that more clear during my presentation, but this isn't about whether or not my presentation was accurate or not, because it was my experience. But yeah, certainly my experience was looking back over eight years, I wish I could have accepted reality sooner, but would, have that, would that even have been possible? Maybe not. Maybe you all need to go through what you need to go through to get to where you are to accepting reality. Everybody's journey is different. But I think there are things we can do to help people along uh, in mm -hmm. doing that. And I think the problem that comes with um, a buzz phrase that triggers fader. <laughs> there are other buzz phrases that trigger me too. I'll give you my, I'll give you my short list of two more. Um, playful obstruction. I mean, it's something we do in floor time all the time. We sort of get in the way a little bit. If somebody's like lining up their cars, we kind of get in there, move the cars a little bit and see if they'll move it back. And the problem with that is that people sometimes take it in a more harsh direction, just like accept reality. And they start doing things that in a way are, you know, kind of mean, kind of mm. aggressive. And it's really important that we know we all have aggressive um, drives within us, right? Like somebody cuts you off on the freeway and usually you're not thinking in a generous way that, ah, must be in a hurry. Maybe they're an important person. No, usually it's something less pleasant that goes through your mind. And with our kids, actually, that, that term playful obstruction triggers some people to be a lot more mean about it than they need to be, not because they intend to be mean to their kids, but because it just sort of generates that sort of competitive, kind of like tickling can be kind of aggressive, right? Um, and so or that's a trigger. Let me people. just explain to some people uh, what you're talking about. Um, I'm looking for something. I'll, I have, to, I'll have to. So, so for example, if, okay, so you gave an example of cars, but I'll give an example of a container. So, oh, you really want these blocks? You really want these blocks? You put them in a Tupperware and you tighten the lid and you're like, have to get them. And you're almost like teasing. And like you said, it's mean. Like now the kid wants the blocks. They see that you put them away from them and are making it hard for them to get it. I don't like that either. <laughs> right. So, so the difference is, I have the blocks and you want them I'm like, oh, of course. And so I have them. So you just, you know, the whole idea is to be part of the child's world. And so, um, so he's playing with the blocks. You want to be part of his world. So you gather them up and you say, oh yeah, you want one. And then you're easy about it, right? You're like, well, here's one, here's another. Well, and then later, like, well, I don't know which one you want. It's a little bit like PRT, pivotal response. I'm not sure. Do you want the blue one? The green? I, I'm not sure. Oh, and then you're going to, and so it's just part of, um, becoming part of the person's world. So it's playful, not aggressive, abstraction. So that's a, and my, I've lost my blocks, I've lost my marbles. So uh, my, I'm gonna pick them up before the dog eats them. The last um, on my short list 
for trigger words is one that people use all the time. It's the word kiddo. Um, mm. These kiddos, right? Mine is mine is buddy. Hey buddy. bud. Hey bud. Oh, no. Buddy. <laughs> I have to work on that one because sometimes I use it. Thank you. Um, so the thing about kiddo the thing buddy, about these, same thing. The thing Kid about me. these words sometimes is that they um, they kind of uh, make the person less than who they are. Um, like for me, if I'm trying to manage the fact that I have somebody in front of me who is really challenging to work with, and I can't really deal with that in the moment, I naturally psychologically will often. Um, make them something a little bit different that makes it easier for me to do something to them or with them that um, that might be difficult or unpleasant. So the word kiddo actually does that to people. It's a diminutive that can be problematic. Now, kid is pretty common. Child, you know, I, I try to stick with those two very plain words. Um, a lot of people um, in, in, you know, I'm a little bit older and in my generation calling um, a woman like you know, sweetheart or sweetie was just kind of what people did. And now you, you know, we, we try to remember not to do that now because it's, it, it diminishes the person. Um, and so in a similar way, a kiddo, um, when people say it, I'm always like, oh no, what do I say something? You know, now these kiddos yeah, and, have this amount of, you know, depression, da, da, da. I'm like, oh. And, and yeah, no, I, I feel the same about kiddo and buddy, but, but let's, let's just um, put the disclaimer out there that all of the people that are listening that do that, <laughs> we I are know. not suggesting in any way that you are not being nice or being um, insulting to people. It's, it's a trigger that Dr. Fader and I happen to share. <laughs> let's yeah, just say it's, that. It's a trigger. Um, but it is, it does, you know, think about how, um, how you think about and manage difficult situations. And we do that naturally, symbolically, we give people new names or labels to try to um, cope. So it's really just a coping thing. Um, and, um, and, and again, getting back to the point of accepting reality, accepting reality includes symbolic thinking that can include uh, different labels that we use. Oh, another great one is um, he's an autistic. I've got this 10 year old autistic, da, 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 da. Um, and so that brought us into that person-centered language for decades uh, where this is not an autistic, this is a person with autism. And so I was trained to think of people as people and autism as second. Now, come ASAN, right? The autistic, autistic self-advocacy network that's now got the opposite view. It's like, you can't, you can't, I, I am my autism, right? I mean, you can't call me a person with autism. It's kind of who I am. It's like being French, you know? You're, this is a person with Frenchness. Doesn't work. So it's a little bit confusing and I know it sort of moves us a little bit away from the topic of accept reality but it does think uh, make us think about who, who are we and what is our reality and how do we come to know our identities of ourselves and of our children are you going to call your child a child with autism or are you going to call your child autistic and and who do they um, grow up um, being or wanting to be uh, my own son who I don't give a lot of identifying information because you don't like that but um, he hated hearing about being autistic. He's like, I don't want that. I just want people to think of me as, you know, me, <laughs> you know, not uh, an autistic kid because I'm worried uh, about discrimination. Yeah, he, he talks about these an adult now. Um, on the other hand, you know, he's yeah, yeah, uh, uh, anyone who's, you know, bright, but you can tell that there's something different if you don't 
work on accepting that reality um, and you don't sort of walk into an interview and give some sort of um, statement about knowing who you are, you come off maybe as, you know, someone who they don't understand very well and it's harder to get the job. I mean, interviewing is so hard for our um, kids when they get older, um, if, they're, if they are in a space where they're looking for work um, or looking for, you know, relationships or friendships or things. And so knowing a little bit, accepting who you are and having a way of talking about it that feels okay to you and explains to others more about who you are. Yeah, I'm kind of more of a science-oriented guy. All right, well, that's enough most of the time for people to say, oh, I get it. And then they move on as opposed to failing the first question of most interviews, which is um, the unspoken, would I have a beer with this person? Well, the answer is no, <laughs> so much of the time um, that um, you don't get through the interview. But if you change the narrative immediately with your reality, which is, you know, I'm kind of a science guy, then that first question sort of gets put aside that you don't have to go through that wicket of, are we going to go out and have beers and be friends? It's, are we going to be focused on getting stuff done that's, you know, helpful to the company? Um, and, and then you're, you're on your way. Um, I want to get back to my PowerPoint a little bit because I want to think about how we help people to uh, figure out where they are and where they're going. Can I do that? Can I reach Yeah, absolutely. Up? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we didn't know. Oh, you disabled participant sharing, so you got to give oh, it back. Oh, whoops. Um, you can just make me a code. Okay. Yep. You can. You can share. You should be able to share. It. Oh yeah. There we go. Um, so getting back to this whole idea of reflective practice, which is really the only thing that I think, if people get good at it or get better at it, um, they'll do better. It's always a question of getting better. It's not getting good, right? It's a process. Um, that second um, slide on the bottom is another not what what not. What not, what not to do. There you go, what not to do. Um, and it's Joan telling Jill, I understand. And what's Jill thinking? No, you don't. So here's the thing. A lot of people will say, and I've sort of gotten into debates about this with um, marketing people who really know their stuff that will say, telling someone I understand helps uh, them know that you care about them, you're thinking about them, you empathize and will, you know, create better understanding between you to, I don't know, sell your product or do what you want to do, sell your idea. And I, that's another trigger one for me. And I'll tell you why. Um, it brings me back, I think it was Tolstoy who wrote Anna Karenina. And the first line of that book is something like, I, I'll butcher it, but something like, um, all happy families are happy in the same way, and all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way, right? And so the idea here is that when I say to you, I understand, you could immediately be bristling about that and saying, well, you don't know what it's like for me. It's really hard. And I got, you know, any of us could list a dozen difficulties in addition to the ones we share about the pandemic, but even the pandemic is something that we all experience in a different way with different kinds of losses and troubles and difficulties. And so saying I understand got Jill down there kind of all stiffened up. So we're saying face it, dejected her and dysregulated her, saying I understand, uh, in this case for Jill, this happens to be her responses, got her all like, ah, no, you don't. Um, so what, what, what will work? Uh, what's helpful? All right, so 
if if there's one phrase, one catchphrase that I deliver, I don't know, 25 times a day, always a little bit different and almost always universally helpful. It's not, I understand, it's that sounds hard. Now, look, the three most important words when you ask people, what are the most three important, most important words in, in like any language? Most people will say, I love you. And if you have to stick to one word, like if you go to another country and you're only going to learn one word, well, it might be bathroom, but but I think thank you is usually the word that I always learn in another language. It's like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, <laughs> right? Um, but in this case, when you're trying to help somebody else out who's going through something difficult, that sounds hard has been pretty solid for me. It's really worked very well. Ironically, paradoxically, what happens when Joan is talking to Jill and she's listening to Jill's difficulties, um, that phrase, that sounds hard, makes Jill feel understood, not in the specifics, but in the general, right? It's a little bit paradoxical because we've just started, we just said that Joan can't really understand Jill, but Jill feels understood, at least again, to that emotional place of that this really is a difficult thing. And that's the kind of key that unlocks a door to being able to think about problem solving, to kind of get, um, to settle things down a little bit, to co-regulate our first level, right? In uh, functional emotional developmental levels is to help someone uh, be regulated enough to be able to engage in a flow of interaction that's a problem solving interaction. So if you remember nothing else from today, the, try out the phrase, that sounds hard. And um, now, and that's sincere, that's the other thing. If you say, I understand, well, you might resonate with what somebody's gone through. Certainly when I hear parents and their difficulties, it resonates with me because I've gone through difficulties as a parent as well. But when I say that sounds hard, it actually is hooking in to where I uh, empathize and resonate, but it's not trying to be too specific. And it's, it's incredibly sincere and true. And the other person knows that for sure. Um, and let, let me add to that, that it's respectful. So yes. you're respecting the experience of the other person. And I have an example of that. Um, I, I can't remember if I shared it on any podcasts, but I certainly shared it um, in a blog post that I did for the rehab hospital. I did a series of blog posts that I can put the link to in today's podcast right up. And for those that were listening, Dr. Fader was showing one of his cartoons. He's a, a cartoonist. I, I I don't know if there's another word that you use instead of cartoonist. I can't remember what you call yourself. We, we say graphic medicine. Graphic, yes. Okay, graphic novellas and stuff. Yeah, so he's showing one of his, um, it, it, it's a depiction that he was describing. So if you want to see that, there'll be a link to that on the blog post or if you watch the YouTube video of this podcast. But um, yeah, I'll put a link to a blog post that I had written about my experience. So I guess I was about a year or two in to the diagnosis, probably less than two years. And I was driving my son to his school, which was a half day school. And we stopped for lunch at a Subway, which is a sandwich chain shop for those that maybe don't know. And um, there was a big lineup. And so my son was, I think three or four and extremely restless 
And, you know, they have now, of course, with COVID, they have plexiglass everywhere. But at the sandwich shop, they always had plexiglass. And he's going up and, you know, banging on the plexiglass and looking. And everybody in line is looking at me like, what's wrong with your kid? Why aren't you disciplining your kid kind of looks? And maybe they weren't thinking that, but that's what I felt like. I felt very judged. And I was desperately trying to engage him and keep him distracted while we're in line. And I'm pointing to the sandwich people and I'm saying, look, see, they put the bread in the oven. Now it's cooking. Oh, now they're putting on the toppings. We're going to put that on your sandwich, blah, 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 blah. Finally, we get to the checkout to pay. And I feel like I owe the cashier an explanation. And so I said to this woman, and she was um, a South Southeast Asian immigrant um, woman with an accent. And the way that she looked at me when I said, oh, my, my son's autistic, sorry. Like I kind of felt like I owed an explanation for his behavior. The way she said to me, oh, I'm sorry. I just like was overcome with this feeling of validation or respect or empathy or something that I paid as fast as I could, got my kid in the car seat and just burst out crying, like right in the parking lot, right by the door. I was embarrassed because if people came out, they would see that I'm bawling my eyes out. And when I wrote about that in a blog post, one of the responses was not every parent would think that way. Some parents would feel very insulted if they said, oh, I'm sorry, as if you should be pitied for having a special needs child. A special needs child is a gift just like any other child. But for what I was going through at that moment, it validated to me, I'm sorry that this is hard for you. And that's what you just said, that sounds hard. And that was my version of hearing that sounds hard. And it just like made me cry. And then of course I'm like, oh, five minutes from the school, they're gonna see my face is all red. It's embarrassing now I'm walking in, they're gonna look at me like what's wrong with his mother. So <laughs> you're going through all of these emotions and and really feeling so um, scrutinized as a parent when you think a child is supposed to behave in a certain way and you have a child who doesn't behave in that way. And even though I loved and adored my child and, and never disciplined him for, for being overly active or rambunctious in any way, I, I understood why he was that way. I was accepting of that, but I really felt such harsh, harsh judgment from others that I think you kind of learn to let go as time progresses. But that I, I just want to say that that sounds hard if it's said in a sincere way, of course, because we always say it's all about affect, right? Affect autism. So if someone says, oh yeah, that sounds hard. So anyway, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> then of course that's not sincere. But when a person, you know, really looks at you and you know kind of gives you that empathetic feeling and expression and like oh, that sounds really hard you know and maybe they don't need to say i'm sorry like the woman said to me because maybe that might be triggering for some people but um yeah it's i think it's important it it right. is a first step to accepting reality i think uh, and you know that grocery store situation is probably one that all of us have gone through with our kids at some point or maybe some other store or whatever, but public situations where the choice of onlookers includes 
um, judging you and saying, control your brat or something like that, or just giving you stink eye um, or taking over. I don't know if you've seen that, you know, people, it's just like, take your baby to make your baby stop crying. I can do this. Let me help you. <laughs> like, whoa. Um, or finding that middle ground of somehow being helpful um, and, um, and understanding. Um, one of our goals, when I was in the Navy, we did a lot of work on, you know, child abuse prevention and how do you train populations to try to do that? And so uh, the, the, the classic example was, you know, toddler in a store having a tantrum and, and what do you say to the parent? I don't think we use that sounds hard, but it was always something like, yeah, boy, <laughs> I can't, I don't have another phrase to say right now because it's in my head, but, but something like, you know, I know that's hard or just being empathic for the parent, knowing that they're feeling, you know, kind of worried and upset and feeling judged and, you know, you kind of commiserate with them just a little bit um, that it, that it can be hard. Um, yeah. Sorry is kind of a funny word because it, it puts you like, if you're saying that to somebody puts them a little bit down here, um, that sounds hard to me. I always try to be below and, and, you know, kind of moving. That's what I, that's why I don't like to ask people questions. I like to make statements most of the time in, in my DIR work, like not, you know, what's your favorite color, but um, something like, you know, I'm not sure what color you like. So it's always putting me a little bit mm -hmm. in a one down position. I, you know, I kept this slide up or this, this, this whole thing up only because I, I'm a little bit perseverative and compulsive and I needed to talk about the last, last part of that slide. And it's an important one. It's kind of, it's a reflection of what we're doing today. The last one, Joan, you know, the person who was trying to help Jill and I'll, and then I'll get rid of this thing. We can just talk as people instead of pictures. But Joan is talking to Jane. Jane is the person who helps Joan kind of settle herself so that she's in a good space to be helping Jill and other people. And the whole point of that is that we ideally, in Fader's world, we ideally live in a world where we are all helping each other, where there's different levels of this. So while um, we in DIR, uh, as, as professionals, try to help parents to support their kids, in their development or help teachers to support their kids or other caregivers um, in their development. We ourselves um, do our best when we too have people supporting us. So, you know, me too, you know, I'm, I uh, have a, a bunch of reflective places where I show up and, and talk and people, you know, kind of help me figure things out, um, individual as well as, um, you know, groups that are reflective groups. And I think that that parallel reflective process which starts, in this case, it's kind of a, a cascade from, let's say, a, um, you know, a mentor to the clinician and the clinician to the parent and the parent to the child. Um, and it, it's not quite that linear because you learn a lot from the people who you're trying to assist, but, but it is a holding environment really for everybody in the system and it makes things go so much better. So I'll, I'll get rid of the slide, but I'll just say it again. If there's only one thing that you take away from this and one thing that you do differently is to try to um, find those places where you have time to think and often time to think with somebody else helping you think, not telling you what to do, but, but helping you weigh ideas, maybe brainstorm a little bit, and then doing that on a regular basis. Traffic from the 101 here at Solana Beach. But... Um, uh, helping you on a regular basis to problem solve 
so that you can feel more confident in your competence to help people. Yeah, and you'll win some, you'll lose some. Nothing, nothing always works, but um, but you do crawl forward, um, you know, a lot more helpfully, productively, and and even happily uh, when when we do that. So. So a so, couple yeah. of a couple of things came up for me there. First of all. I'm really glad you pointed out that last square because I didn't realize that it wasn't Joan and Jill anymore. It was now Jane and Joan. <laughs> and um, the importance of that is that, you know, you said Jane isn't telling Joan what to do as a clinician supporting Jill. <laughs> We're really confusing people now. Um, she's saying that sounds hard to the person who's supporting the parent right. and and um, helping them figure it out and it's exactly what we do with parents in floor time we we do that to support them but similarly we are a model of that for them to be their child because what's the number one thing i see with new parents coming in wanting to learn floor time what's the number one thing i did with my child before i learned about floor time direct 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 tell your kids what to do tell your kids what to do oh go grab that okay put that here do this draw this here no make the line go straight not crooked do this do this do this or whatever it is we're we're so um it's so natural for us to just tell our kids what to do and in floor time, it, it's a big leap for some parents to step back and just sort of, let's see what the child can bring to me. And I like how you use the example of, hmm, I'm not sure which color is your favorite. Because as parents, that's another thing we do all the time too. And, and it was one of the points I made in my ICDL presentation. Parents are gonna come to you and they are going to show you all these amazing things about their kid. Look what my kid can do. Look how cute my kid is. Look how smart my kid is. Look at this amazing things that um, they said today or whatever. And as that, we're advocating for our child. But what that sometimes turns into is someone will say something will be happening around the child and you step in and speak for your child. Oh, my son's favorite color is yellow. Oh, my son likes this. No, he doesn't like that at a restaurant. Oh, do you want to try? You know, maybe they're passing around samples, which in COVID, post-COVID days, I think samples are done. <laughs> but let's say at Costco, when they used to have samples of food, oh, here, would you like it? And right away, no, no, my son doesn't like that. And then he grabs it and eats it and more, more, more. And I'm like, oh, he did like that. So um, I think it's a really important point you make that, that we're not directing children in floor time we're not directing parents when we coach parents. And as reflective practice uh, teams, we're not telling the other what to do. And, and I, I did a podcast with uh, Dr. Jerry Costa a few weeks back about formation, the process of formation and reflective practice in, in training um, practitioners. So yeah, all very good points. Yeah, we, we take the little sparks that are there and we help them grow into beautiful flames of intent and agency or whatever word you want to use. Um, you know, it's a little late in our um, podcast, but I, I wanted to add a double dedication today because you know, we're talking about reflective practice. And when you do this, when, when you get that kind of assistance from somebody, you end up, you end up like taking on a part of them with you. 
I mean, it's really what we want in our kids, right? We want them because we're not going to be there forever. We want them to take a part of us with them so that when they're in a tough spot, they think, well, what would dad do? What would mom do? And it helps them solve the problem. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And one of the people who is really wonderful at doing that and really understanding reflective practice and who died really like the first day of lockdown was Rebecca Shamun Shanik. She was a giant in the reflective practice and the DIR world did a lot of training. And she had, she had an aneurysm and died right at the beginning. The Perfectum conference was that weekend in mid-March. And so we started the conference and, and we had heard that Rebecca had died and it was so sad. But I have to say over the past year, I learned so much from her. I even learned from her in her death because they had an online um, shiva, you know, some memorial for her. And I got to go there. I, I wouldn't have been able to go to New York um, in re regular times. Um, and that turned out to be a good lesson for me because I lost my dad about a month ago. And um, another person who I've taken in, we could talk about dad someday. He was on the spectrum, learned a lot from him, but you know, <laughs> there's a lot there to think about. Um, and then for his memorial, I, you know, we did what, what Rebecca had, which was online kinds of things. But the point is, I have Rebecca in me a little bit. I have dad in me a lot. And um, when we have these reflective experiences, we take those people and their helpfulness with us as a regulating and um, problem solving and loving presence uh, forever. Um, and so, you know, we, we're circling back to accept reality. Um, this is the most beautiful part of accepting reality. It's accepting the fact that there are people who care about you and who are there to help you. Fred Rogers always said, you know, find the good people. There are always good people and they're there to help you and, and spend the And by time. Fred Rogers, you mean Mr. Rogers, like Mr. Mr. Rogers, Rogers neighborhood? Yeah. Because when the first time I heard people talk about Fred Rogers, I'm like, who's Fred Rogers? And then I, oh, they mean Mr. Rogers. I used to watch him all the time. Okay, sorry, brilliant, go on. Brilliant, loving man, right? Um, and he's in the hearts of many of us because we watched his show. Um, and you can do it as an adult and you still get, I try to channel him when I'm with kids sometimes. I'm not as good because he was just so calm. <laughs> but anyway, um, so you take these people with you um, and um, well, I'm just repeating myself, but, but we take them with us forever. Um, and, and that's really, that's the, that's the helpful reality that can help us, you know, help each other and, and have a, a better go of it in a very challenging world. And you just reminded me of a book I read at least 15 years ago, if not longer, uh, not really a book book, but celebrity memoir um, of Isabella Rossellini. I think it was called Some of Me or something like that, S-O-M-E. And she spoke uh, in an interesting way about how she, she called it ghosts in her head or the ghosts. So her mother's voice telling her something or people that she'd known in the past who are no longer with with her and similar to what you said that that piece of them that you carry forward and um you know i'm sure there's many dir people who channel the the, the lessons of dr greenspan and and when they're doing floor time um and similar things and also very sorry to hear about your father um i could say um we could we could talk a little bit more about that because I know you mentioned him being on the spectrum and maybe we will have a podcast about dads one day too. But um, well, we yeah, should. 
it, it's I, I love that you brought up um, something that obviously was uh, um, an emotional, painful experience that you saw a positive in it that because of the Shiva they did for this woman, Rebecca, that you admired so much, that gave you the ideas of how to honor your dad as well. And that's that's awesome to focus on positive things too, because it's it's really easy these days for people to focus on negative things. And similarly, when we're working with our kids and accepting reality, it's really easy to focus on the negative. Like my child can't sleep through the night. My child can't go to the bathroom on their own. My child can't tell me when they're under distress. My child can't do this. And then in your face, oh, look, my nephew who's three or four years younger is already surpassing my child's development in all these ways. And, and look, that person doesn't have to do this, that, and the other thing. And, and look at, I had to quit my job to care for my child. I had to, you know, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me negative. And um, it, it's really important to pull ourselves up from that because um, our reality may be that it's harder for us as a parent than other parents, but everybody's experience is their own and we never know what's going on with other people. They have, may have challenges in totally other ways that we can't know. So, um, yeah, I think, um, it, part of accepting reality is exactly what you said, knowing that there are people who are helpful even if we don't experience that in our immediate circles or we don't feel that, we can go out and find those supports because they are there. And certainly we offer that with the ICDL weekly support virtual meeting every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern under my events tab at affectautism.com or the ICDL website under parents. But there are um, numerous ways to feel support. Um, I know we have to end soon. I've got a patient, but really no discussion you brought up the idea of ghosts it wouldn't be complete without mentioning two wonderful people and and their many books um one is selma freiberg who wrote the magic years but um also famously she wrote a a paper called ghosts in the nursery where she talked about how um our ghosts meaning our parents like when you have two parents looking over the nursery you know looking over the baby in the nursery there's actually four other people there you know the the parents of the people. And in our families, you know, how you define family is probably more than that. And she was talking about how there could be um, influences that change how you see the child in a way that can be challenging. But then Elisa Lieberman, who is one of Selma Freiberg's um, disciples and has written amazing things, she's sort of broadened that out to talk about, and this is really what we're talking about today, angels in the nursery. So the good people who were in your life when you were young, hopefully we all had somebody, and who stay with you and help you to do the good that you do in the world. So I know that anybody listening to this, if they hadn't heard those two names after we talked about all this, they would have said, Josh, you forgot about right. someone. Actually, Dr. Glavinsky brought up that um, ghosts in the nursery concept in one of our early podcasts I did with him. Um, I forgot about that, but yeah, those voices where, you know, if, I think he brought it up in the context of discipline. Like if you, your parent was saying, you know, don't do this, don't do this. And then you find yourself saying to your child, don't do this, don't do this. Stepping back and saying, well, does that make sense in this case? And, um, and I would, I would uh, offer that if you've never read the magic years, 
I recommend people read it once a year. It's like from 1979 or something, but it's amazing, the Selma Freiburg book. But I would caution you about reading Ghosts in the Nursery because it talks about a very difficult family situation and how they managed it. And although successfully, um, it's about child abuse. And so it, that can be hard to read. Um, Alicia Lieberman also takes on a lot of these difficult topics too. And, you know, everybody has things that are um, easier to read and things that are that are hard because, well, we deal with difficult things sometimes. So just fire beware. Maybe this yeah. was some of me. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and, and I know we do have to run, but one thing I just wanted to bring up quickly and see if you have anything to say about it. We had talked about, um, you know, throughout our lives, we're going to have these grief reactions that come up as life unfolds. So, you know, when, when I um, moved to the suburbs, I saw all the little boys playing baseball in the park. And I just was overcome with uh, tears because my son will never play baseball. And my brother and I both grew up playing baseball and t-ball. And so that was hard for me. Um, other times you'll see kids that can do things that your child can't and you'll have those moments of grief. Uh, the anniversary of something terrible that happened. Um, we always think of the anniversary of the death of a loved one, but in our case, the anniversary of my son's brain inflammation when he was rushed to the hospital is, is um, not as emotionally trying as it was the first few years. So we're gonna have these grief reactions come up and um, we it makes us accept reality in a harsh way, but I think we've talked about today ways that can support us self-care as you've highlighted. Yeah, I, I have a little present to show you and I, I can keep my person waiting a minute. Um, so here, here's a little present. We talk a lot about self-care. This is um, from uh, Miller and Sprang's. Um, how do you, like when you care about somebody uh, and you care too much, people who care too much, there are a lot of books about that, that we call it compassion fatigue, right? You know, what the what not to do is the important thing here. And I have an ocean analogy because I live near an ocean. If you have a bad situation in your life, and you're not like prepared for it, you get flattened. I mean, that's what happens by the wave of emotion from the situation. On the other hand, if you see it coming and you try to stop that wave of emotion, you get flattened <laughs> because you can't stop these things. So Miller and Sprague, very wise. This is what they suggest. Now I, again, this is an ocean analogy. They describe it a different way. What they say is you kind of dive in, right? So you know it's coming. You, you allow it to bob you up and down, knowing you're going to get kind of tumbled a little bit, but also knowing that it will pass and it'll leave you standing or you'll be able to get yourself picked up again anyway, brush the water off. And that's a better way to tolerate these things. And if you do it more and more, you get a little bit more accustomed to, oh yeah, this is what this is. And it's less um, traumatizing, less overwhelming. Um, so yeah, I thought I'd just leave you, leave you with I'll, that. I'll put a and link to... Lean into the waves of stress, knowing you'll still feel them bob up and down as it goes through you and then let it dissipate. So, And in another blog I wrote for that rehab hospital, I used the analogy of swimming that, you know, we, we got thrown into the water and how come everybody else has a boat, but we're stuck trying to swim. But on the other hand, we've become really good swimmers and, you know, we now feel um, a club or, you know, with the other swimmers in the water. Um, I use some kind of similar swimming analogy. But anyway, I'll put a link to all of that stuff that you spoke of, the authors that you mentioned in the blog post at affectautism.com. 
Once again, thank you, Dr. Fader, and we will have to speak again in the next few oh, months. It's always a pleasure, Daria. Thank you so much for having me again. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.